All right, welcome everybody. This is Rob Thompson, interview with influencers. I got a major power player in the youth sports space, facility management. Um, this is a guy that uh, I've wanted to have on my show for quite some time, but you're a busy man, Dev. Well, glad to be here, Rob, and, and a pleasure to be on your podcast in particular. You do great work. I appreciate that. So, Dev, you're the founder and CEO of Sports Facility Advisory and Sports Facility Management. Um, you guys have a massive portfolio. I've run events at your facilities before, and they're always world-class. Um, so you guys have a portfolio of about eight billion or $5 billion, um, in assets, and you've had roughly 16 million visitors to your facilities in the last couple of years. But I think for the general audience to know, um, tell them, if you can, talk, talk about your facilities, the business, how, and the overall operational um, of your business model. Yeah, so um, thank you, Robin. So SFA, the Sports Facilities Advisory, is a separate entity from our management company, which is called SFM, the Sports Facilities Management. SFA um, is engaged to produce institutional-grade financial forecasts. So we've developed uh, for all manner of youth and amateur facilities. So we've developed a market research process that allows us to accurately forecast future performance. It includes competition study and market analysis and right-sizing of the program, construction and startup cost estimate for those clients, and then most importantly, cash flow forecasts so that we can then help represent that client to finding funding sources. And so SFA is really in the business of helping clients get their projects funded and financed if they're feasible and financeable. And then SFA, SFM, uh, manages those same types of projects uh, when a funding source requires that because we have a lot of experience and a proven track record or when a client wants to outsource the management of their operations. And we do that on all types of facilities, but primarily youth and amateur and tournament style facilities. So 50 million, five zero million visits in our facilities in just the last three years. And we've uh, done this kind of work collectively on about $9 billion in various projects around the world. It's amazing. And, and for those who are, are trying to, you know, if you haven't noticed and understood what, what we're talking about is these are the massive uh, multiple field, multiple facility sports mega complexes that are popping up around the country, correct? Yeah, in large part, because when a community is decided and determined for themselves that they want to significantly increase uh, the spend in their hotels at the economic impact that can come from these tournaments and events, um, the, that community often starts thinking big. And when they think big, they stretch outside of their own abilities. So if it's a you know, small couple of field complex, most communities are fairly well equipped to take that on. But when it becomes a larger endeavor and when the objectives um, and the revenues associated with that facility are directly tied to filling hotel rooms and driving economic impact or to doing something transformational in a community, um, even if it's in, uh, an urban revitalization or downtown development. When you get into those bigger projects, you know, most communities know they need some outside help. And, you know, so they'll turn to us. So, so you're exactly right. So who are some of your clients? Is it mostly um, community sports commissions or is there some sometimes private investors in those markets or a combination yeah, of so all that? It's a combination. About 40 percent of our clients are on the private side and they tend to be um, experienced developers. We're working on a number of large mixed use developments 
that where sport is the anchor. So retail has changed, as you well know. So has uh, food and beverage and, and um, uh, office and other space. So uh, those real estate developments today often need to be anchored with some kind of an attraction. And sport and youth sports uh, being the fastest growing segment in the travel industry and the only segment to never, never decline in a single quarter throughout the recession, um, you know, has become uh, attractive to developers. So on the private side, developers looking for large mixed use developments uh, will engage us to help them figure out what they should develop and how that's going to perform and how much traffic it's going to drive and that sort of thing. And then on the, um, the public side, uh, it's, you know, every kind of city you might imagine. So this week alone, we will receive somewhere between 40 and 50 inbound requests for services from clients we've never heard of before, uh, never had a conversation with before. That's the volume and, uh, that's, yeah, that's coming in. And they include uh, current projects include uh, the city of Myrtle Beach, which is the third largest tourism destination in America behind Vegas and Orlando, um, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, that already hosts over 12 million visits a year because the uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park is there. Um, they wanted to expand their tourism business and youth sports was the answer. So we planned open and we now manage uh, the Rocky Top Sports Center in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. In Hoover, Alabama, we manage an $85 million development, um, the Hoover Met and, uh, and the Finley Center, um, and, uh, and then a number of others, as you might imagine, across the country. So when you do your due diligence on, and I'm sure you have a, a, a great formula for it, when you're doing your due diligence on a market when they reach out to you, um, is it, I'm sure it's at that point now, how do you evaluate the, put evaluation and just evaluate the overall potential of, of that market? Is it based upon the local investors, the community you know, the upside in the next 10 years or where the, you know, are parents going to actually travel to that market? I mean, how do you evaluate it? Yeah, we think of it like bankers and finance sources, including public finance side. So in other words, if we're going to use any sort of taxpayer dollar or if we're going to bring in any kind of private investment, the model has to be safe and the forecasting has to be conservative. If we, we, one of our mantras is if we lie, we die. If we over forecast in the early stage and then end up with projects that, uh, that underperform to those forecasts, mm -hmm. you can imagine our business would be, would be dead. Right. So of those, let's call it 50 new inbound requests this, this week, mm -hmm. a very small percentage of them, uh, you know, maybe five to 10 will be qualified enough based on our preliminary market research, which has to do with drive times into a marketplace by population. It has to do with the, uh, the, the current uh, sports participation rates in that marketplace. It has to do with the competition in that marketplace. So if we run that preliminary analysis, we can tell very quickly whether a, a particular destination or project is worthy of a deeper look. Um, and, and then when we go into market, we want to meet with everybody. So we're meeting with potential strategic partners like hospitals. Um, there's typically a public-private partnership that needs to be created. So we're meeting with the Convention and Visitors Bureau, as well as we're meeting with the city manager, with Parks and Recs. Um, so we have this spectrum and this wheel of different types of groups that we're meeting with to figure out whether we can create enough synergy in a single facility and enough various uses during the week when we're not running tournaments to offset what would be otherwise be, you know, ongoing operating expenses. 
And so we're thinking of it like a banker. Do we have the right use potential utilization to just drive fundamentally, um, you know, X size in facility? And that's how we right size the concept. Then we get to work and we produce a financing uh, document. And that includes looking at what that particular client's initial um, capital uh, contribution to the project might be and really helping them design that capital stack. What's the first money in? What's the next money in? Are we using tax-free municipal bonds in one portion of the project? If we do, that affects what kind of management and what kind of structures can be used in a facility because there's just laws around that. So it's a, it's a bowl of soup, as you might imagine, Rob, to figure out what's the right approach, what's the right size facility, and what's the financing strategy that's going to make this project real. And if we can't get all of those ingredients lined up, for that perfect taste in the soup, the project is not, it's either not feasible or it's not financeable. Um, and, and so if we can pass through all those gates, then we go and represent the project to get that capital. Um, now you have to open it and operate it in line with what you originally uh, forecasted. And so that's where we really help that client set up the systems and the operating procedures, hire the staff and put all of the programs in place mm -hmm. to make that facility what it was promised to be earlier. So you can imagine that's a few year cycle with clients. And key to that is our relationship with clients, as you would, would guess, that um, we have to be working with clients who want what we have and we have to um, deliver to clients meaningful, measurable, you know, deliverables that actually move the needle. What do you find? Yeah, and there's no pressure <laughs> delivering that, I'm sure. Um, what do you What do you find to be your biggest challenge, whereas I've seen a lot of these indoor facilities and the first folks in it, it typically the if it's privately funded, um, I found that it's a guy who you know might have been in the industry before or his kids played and he figures that he could do it better than the local you know recreation department or the club teams, and these guys struggle to operate it Monday through Friday and put in, and figure out a revenue model that works for them with these massive facilities and Rocky top. I've been, we've operated there many times and that's an amazing facility. Um, what, what do you find to be the kind of that magic mix of driving revenue through that nine to five day during the week where typically it's after hours and on the weekends? Is it, is it tournament well, yeah, business? It's an interesting it's an interesting question. So you um, let's separate the facilities. So you have private and you have public. And on the private side, you have training academies that are focused on developing athletes, places like Bo Jackson's Elite Sports, which we are partners in. So we own a significant stake in the Bo Jackson's Elite Sports Development Group, have a project and a facility that we opened this last year, about a $10 million development in um, Hilliard, Ohio, outside of Columbus. That facility is dedicated to training athletes, uh, running team building and leadership development programs, and it thrives on that everyday um, revenue model. You've got to have enough athletes in that marketplace who want and desire training in order to make that business model work. Mm -hmm. um, it's also built as a dome. Domes are um, less expensive in startup. Mm -hmm. They are often taxed differently, so we can typically develop a dome, the real estate taxes would be $400,000 on a hard structure. It might be 75,000 on a dome. Wow. That's $325,000 a year to the bottom line. So, uh, so on the private side, the reality is most people should not 
open, an indoor or, or a right. sports facility on the private <laughs> side, because right. most of the money is spent on the outside of the facility. It's spent yeah. in equipment and in hotels and in all kinds of other things. Um, so uh, very few private clients who call us, um, very few, um, sh- should end up developing facilities. And where they do, we need to put a public-private partnership in place so there's some public contribution, and we need contractually obligated revenue from partners in the marketplace. Um, at Bo Jackson's, we have Ohio State University's sports medicine department on site as a tenant in the facility. We have Gatorade and Nike as sponsors. We have a team building center. We have that bowl of soup really works, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. On the public side, you have community rec, which is re- is what, what you and I grew up with, right? Mm-hmm. Those are parks and recreation assets that are intended to have some ongoing operating expense, right? You're going to pay... 25 cents or a dollar per 25 cents a year or a dollar per citizen per year to offset the operating expenses of a pool or some such thing. Um, And today those are more sophisticated developments. So that's one side. And then the tournament business um, is, you know, those facilities like Rocky Top are designed for that weekend and when school's out use. So now to your question, to fill the daytime hours, that's how I originally got in the business. I owned and operated a number of team building centers. And we used rock climbing and ropes course and all kinds of other active, um, you know, uh, apparatus to deliver that team building. So we often put corporate events, team building, special events, senior programming. We sign contracts with schools. We might open an academy in partnership with a school um, to, tr- to um, educate and train athletes. Um, we'll do any number of things to look at filling that daytime uh, slot that would otherwise, in most of these facilities, you know, it sits empty. What is, and, and I, you know, I've, I've seen both. Um, I've seen after school programs in, uh, where was it? In outside of Denver, that was just amazing. When I was, we were running um, NFL youth programming there and um, I was there at two o'clock, two thirty in the afternoon and buses were pulling up one after another, dropping off the kids from school. But there was a partnership to your point. There was a partnership with the local board of education that this was their after school program um, for whatever kids wanted to opt in or whatever families wanted those kids from two thirty to five thirty when the parents picked them up. And I'm like, this is brilliant. You know, this is brilliant. And the place was packed. So. <clears throat> Breaking well, you, rich. You got it. Co- collaboration yeah. is the strategy. That's our yeah. corporate strategy here at SFA and SFM. Yeah. So, you know, we're positioned and designed to partner with and work with all kinds of groups, both locally in the markets that we're in, but also nationally. And we, we bring that same strategy and thinking into our facilities. A facility cannot and should not stand alone, and it shouldn't be opened as, as a lone wolf. Facilities should be opened with those partnerships in place, like I talked about with OSU. Uh, we're working on a project right now in Memphis, a large project. That project is going to require partnership with the hospitals and the universities and a number of other um, local organizations um, in order for it to um, pencil out into something that can really work. And that's true in every one of the projects we're working on right now that are in the planning phase. So what do you see um, happening in the youth sports space? And I know, I mean, there was a great article that you you were featured in and um, and, and also, was it um, on uh, 60 Minutes? Uh, yeah, the HBO, HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, and I did a Today right. Show recently. Um, 
Well, the marketplace is really, it's a complicated story in that um, you have, um, you know, when we were kids, uh, more kids were playing sport. And that's because uh, school-funded sport and physical education um, had more kids sampling a lot of different sports. Mm -hmm. What happened um, in, in the recession and what happened, I think it was an unintended consequence of no child left behind as an act, what happened in those, with those two um, uh, events is that we first defunded school sports um, with no child left behind in some significant ways, physical education and school sports. Um, I don't think anyone at the time knew that, what the consequences of that would be. And then the recession came and we had to retract and defund parks and recreation programs. So you left sport to the private sector, and we're in that private sector. But what that has meant is that the most committed athletes um, commit to a sport earlier than they used to. Mm -hmm. They become often single sport or, you know, two sport focused, um, and they're playing travel ball, right? So that works really well if you have a household income of seventy-five, dollars $100,000 or more. But what has been left behind um, are people uh, with household incomes of less than $75,000. So that we see a serious decline in sports participation rates on a national level across almost every major sport. But, and then this tremendous growth in travel sports. Fewer athletes traveling and playing more games has led to the growth in that segment. But we still have a crisis in terms of who gets access to sport. And so, you know, even in these new facilities, we believe that the ethos of these facilities must be to open their doors during the week and to create programs that encourage access. Um, but that's the landscape. Massive growth in travel sports, great growth in all these facilities. But we also believe we're headed to a point where those facilities um, are going to end up competing with one another at a level where they need to be utilized in a variety of different ways. Um, so you, so in today's market, you can build a sports facility like Rocky Top, but you also need in the design of Rocky Top to be prepared to host conferences and events and showcases and all kinds of other um, things as this market is um, absolutely poised for change and transformation here in the next 10 years. You know, there was a lot of people's opinions, especially people outside the industry that would frown upon you know, the amount of money that parents are paying for their kids to play Cub and Elite and, and to travel, which, by the way, as you know, only very few are actually elite. <laughs> the majority are down yes. at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, but I found it as, you know, growing up in a, in a very blue collar area in um, outside of New Haven, Connecticut, you know, my parents didn't they they just weren't the parents that they were dropping you off and leaving all your road your bike to practice or you know, they have just the times, right? So, and we didn't spend a lot on vacations. And I call, I look at this generation and me as a parent of four children and being in the business, in the industry, I looked at it as, well, what's wrong with replacing that weekend away to go to a tournament? I call it sportcations, you know? And I said, I see nothing more healthy than a family spending time together. And yes, it's a competitive environment and a competitive weekend, but 99% of the people, they walk away with positive, great experiences that they've been able to do together as a family. And so I don't, I never saw any, and yes, granted, I'm, I was in the industry, so I was, I was able to make a living out of it. 
and and benefit from you know the the culture, but at the same time, what would you rather do? Go home as a, a kid and and not spend any time with your family at all because both of your parents are working, which are a good majority of the kids that you mentioned that can't can't afford to be in these weekends. But the ones that can afford to do it and the ones that do invest in doing a lot of them can't afford it and they still do it. I think it. I look at it as nothing but a positive experience for our family to do together. Yeah, I so. think in large part that's exactly what not, that the research says. Yeah. Um, Wintergreen Research, um, owned by Susan Eustace, did a study on the youth and amateur marketplace. And one of the things that she found is that the vast majority of families who are participating um, are not participating because they're pursuing a scholarship. Right. They will say, sure, that'd be nice. But the, what they comment most on is the quality of the time in the car with their kids and the quality of the conversation and the, what you call it sportcation, we call it tourniquetion, yeah. the quality of that experience in that tourniquetion. Um, so um, we think that's great for families, <coughs> excuse me, and kids who can afford it. It's phenomenal. And, y- you know, you don't blame the Marriott for being the Marriott. And you don't <laughs> ask the Marriott to be the Motel 6. Right. right. Um, not and it's so it's absolutely true. There's a marketplace um, for families that can afford this. I, I think the what needs to be added to that is that those same types of facilities and those same destinations should be encouraging programs that support access for all. Um, so a destination like like uh, that that we might be in, we want them to ask questions before saying to a group, "Hey, we'll you know." We'll discount the rental on the facility because of the number of room nights you're going to bring in. We ought to ask them how many kids are scholarshiped. We ought to ask them whether some of our local teams who would not otherwise be able to play can play in the tournament at no cost. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some very simple and practical ways to drive access, um, and I agree with you. The overwhelming majority of this is positive. Mm-hmm. Where it's not positive, and, and what the research suggests around sports participation rates and one of the contributing factors to the decline is when um, overly achievement-oriented adults take charge of the experience for kids to the point where the kids are no longer dominating the sport, the adults are. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there are a couple of key factors there. One is hyper-specialization too early. It leads to, so a kid who's 9 or 10 or 11 who starts to specialize, um, when they specialize in a single sport without knowing it, they're decreasing their chances for a future scholarship because they will not be developing the same level of athleticism. Um, and they are more likely to burn out and stop enjoying the sport over the, the let's call it the three or four years that would follow. Right. So playing in multiple sports is important. Um, and the other factor is um, coaches and coach training. We have a lot of kids out there who are being trained by coaches who don't have just fundamental education in how to engage and motivate and keep kids engaged. Um, and so those are issues that, that we're trying to address. We're addressing it with Project Play 2020, the Aspen Institute Project Play 2020. Right. Um, it's, uh, you know, and a number of other, other national initiatives. What do you think is next? What, so what's next coming down from, do you, do you see the AAUs of the world growing or contracting? Uh, I think we'll see um, a lot of M&A activity, a lot of merger and acquisition activity. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it now. Um, right. The wintergreen research suggests that the industry itself, the youth sports industry, not the travel side, but youth sports in general, mm-hmm. 
So direct spend in youth sports is a $15 billion industry. They forecasted that that will double in the next five years. Wow. So Rob, find another industry that's about to double and you will find a place that is ripe for M&A activity. And so what we think will happen is that, um, you know, the, the events business, and we see it now, will it'll contract and some larger players will begin to uh, purchase um, a, a variety of different events and events-oriented organizations. Um, so on the event side, that's what we see, we see coming. Uh, we think that's going to come with more specialized training for kids and better value propositions over time. Um, we think it's going to come with, uh, you know, all kinds of dig- digital um, communication to those kids. And a large portion of that growth, the $15 billion to $30 billion, is advertisers. Mm-hmm. So what we know also is that uh, sponsors and advertisers are going to come into the market and start influencing the landscape. Um, so that's that's one thing that will happen. I think with facilities, we'll see a continued growth in the number of communities that are developing facilities. But you'll see those facilities, uh, certainly those that we're designing these days, they're much more versatile. They're designed to be, you know, these incredible event centers that can be used for sport as the primary objective, but can be quickly converted into essentially a, a, a city or a community's additional convention space, if you will. Right. Um, and and that's in protection for what might become a bit of uh, saturation sometime in the next 10 years. So I, I think that's coming. And then, you know, major players coming into the marketplace, um, you know, NBC Sports. So we, we think Amazon and Google are, you know, right around the corner in terms of their interest in this marketplace. Um, certainly hotel developers are, um, you know, new financing mechanisms will be applied. So there's a lot that's that's changing and turning right now. But um, we think that the majority of that will be around consolidation in the events business and innovation in the facilities development side. So how about for your business? Do you see any verticals that are adding into it or do you know, are you very comfortable in your space from a, from a management and an advisory side? Well, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, you know, I'm a kid who grew up in a really tough house and sport yeah. lifted me. And so the heart of, what we do, um, you know, and we're, you know, a few hundred people now full time. The heart of what we do is centered around improving the health and the economic vitality of communities we're in. So what we're doing, the verticals are around those issues. Mm-hmm. The verticals are around proving out how a single facility improves the health of a community. Um, Johns Hopkins University Center for Global Obesity Prevention and others have really good research to help us justify the community health benefits of just getting people active and moving. The outcomes for kids are dramatically different for those kids who get to play sport from those who don't. So we see ourselves promoting that research and data for the purpose of improving a community's commitment to engaging kids in activity. That will mean that we need to both track those health outcomes and have programming that's in direct support of those health outcomes. And then on the economic development side, you know, it's all about, um, you know, adding value for that, um, for that guest. Um, so that means that, you know, we need to create events that are both exciting and attractive and interesting. And in the destination, we need to create reasons for those families to either come back for a second visit or vacation or, you know, to stay in that marketplace a little bit longer. Uh, but, the, the, you know, where we see adding the most value 
is is centered around those two objectives. Does this improve the health and the um, quality of life outcomes for the kids who were uh, influencing, and how does it improve the economy in the destination that we're whether in the destination we're working in? Hmm, interesting. You you mentioned the amount of employees that you have, um, which is which is incredible. And congratulations, and I'm sure you, I'm sure. If, I'm sure it's a lot of sleepless nights thinking about everybody. I know how the deal is. Um, what kind of advice do you give to those coming right out of college with sports management degrees um, to, to enter into your world? And what are some of the skill sets that you see necessary in 2018 that brings your company value? Yeah, I think um, I think so often we people follow a sports management degree because they love sport. Um, but to be successful in sport, you have to understand the business of sport um, and and uh, not take for granted that knowledge. So um, the first thing I tell students who are studying for a sports management degree is, you know, you may you may want to pursue a sports management degree, but you may do just as well to take and pursue a business degree or a degree in entrepreneurialism um, or any number of other kinesiology or any number of other outcomes or, or, or uh, career paths, and then you can bring all of that into what it is you're going to do, but know the numbers. If, if um, kids coming out of school can't read a budget, um, if they're afraid of budgets and that fear prevents them from digging in and learning about them, if they don't understand what drives a marketplace, um, if they're not thinking about how a facility's operating costs um, compare to its revenues, um, they will end up uh, honestly working in a ticket office somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's very different than ending up in a leadership position where you have responsibility um, over a larger team. So I think that's, that's paramount. Um, you know, uh, kids come in and they're trying to decide, do I go into, do I, you know, pursue a career in uh, coaching or do I pursue a career in um, marketing? Um, I, I think you have to decide first and foremost where your passion is. But secondly, if income is important to you, um, you need to find the role model that's out there whose career looks like something you would want to pursue and whose lifestyle and income looks like something you'd want um, and figure out what they're doing and what they've done. Do you, from your facilities, and I, I, I assume you're, you know, you're bringing in entry-level um, positions in there from operation standpoint, tournament management, and um, what are, is your trajectory and do you have um, you know, opportunities for, for growth within? Uh, is it typically starting at a facility if they can come work for your, your organization? Uh, we have some of those, and absolutely, uh, you know, one of our um, account executives, Dan Morton, here in the office, started with us working in a facility in Pennsylvania and came here to corporate and learned our market research process and then be- has become an account executive. So he's now responsible for forecasting and shepherding projects uh, with clients, you know, 10 and 15 and 20 and $30 million projects from concept all the way through to concrete. Uh, I mean, an amazing career path. Uh, most of our here, so here at corporate, we're based in Clearwater Beach, Florida. Here at corporate, we're just under 40 people. And this collection includes our finance department. So those are bookkeepers and accountants and such. It includes our human resources department who are responsible for managing everything people related in the organization. It includes our legal and risk management. 
So we have, you know, administrative and, and um, in-house legal there. Um, and then, you know, down the hall, you've got business development, and that team is marketing and business development, both for our venues and for our various entities. Um, and then you have the executive team that's really responsible for sort of the direction and some of our key relationships. Um, so, uh, yes, it's true that people can start in facilities and climb their way up. Um, but, you know, to the extent that uh, somebody really wants a career um, at, as a sort of advisor or some such thing, they're better off to get cl as close to the corporate office of whatever company they're working for as they can. But do you guys bring in summer interns as well? We do. Um, so we have interns. We have, um, you know, we have interns who've, who've joined us as full-time employees. Um, we, we absolutely do. And listen, the work in the facilities is amazing. Um, yeah. Most of that happens from local hires. Right. Except I, I, the general manager and the marketing director, as you might right. imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I tell our students all the time, I think one of the best places to learn everything that you can is at the heart of the industries where the events happen from the facility side. And um, no doubt I'm, about it. Yeah. Just, just, you know, the credibility factor, understand where it's coming from the ground up. And I call it the spine of the industry, you know, starts at the event and customer service and sales and getting people there and experience and the functionality of it from the field itself. And then the outside of the field with sponsor activation and, so um, if people who are listening now from wants, wants to look at career boards or want to contact you um, because they're interested in <laughs> connecting to your 30 million visitors or 50 million visitors, five zero, um, how do they reach out to your, your, um, your business? Well, really, I think the first thing is they should understand us. We have, as you might imagine, a lot of folks saying, hey, how do we get involved? And right. a lot of those kinds of requests in a week, hundreds of those sorts of emails. Um, you know, those who end up um, you know, successfully um, making it in and getting a meeting with us and so on and so forth, they, they need to understand our business. So they should visit the website at sportadvisory.com. Yeah. Um, they should learn a little bit about us and do some research before they come in. Um, it's, it's competitive enough that that's the case. And, uh, and then, yeah, they can reach out to the different department that might be appropriate in most cases. And this is true of most companies. Most cases, the CEO is not the first person you, you reach out to. Right. Um, you know, in most cases you wouldn't want to reach out to HR for anything that's career or, um, you know, job related, um, or to our business development or, our, um, or our facility development side, if you're on the, you know, if you have a product you want to get into facilities. Well, as an example, we'll buy millions of square feet of artificial turf here in the next couple of years. So if you were a vendor in the artificial turf space, um, you would want to talk to someone in our uh, pre-opening development construction side. So, Great. I appreciate your time, Dev. It's, it's really been, I know it's very valuable and time is currency. And so I appreciate the time you've given us. Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate you and the work you've done over the years, all of the great things you've done. So thanks for having me today, and you know, hopefully this in some way leads to more kids playing sport because ultimately that's what it's got to be about. Yeah, absolutely. Sure it does. The massive impact that you've had on, on kids' lives and families' lives and especially all the things that you've done behind the scenes. And you know, I think there's more people in the industry need to know who you are and what you do and that these are career paths and opportunities um, not just as you don't need to necessarily go be the general manager of the New York Yankees. 
you know, the massive impact that you have on, on people's lives um, is, you know, unmeasurable, Deb. So um, from, from a guy who's been passionate about the youth sports space for a very long time, I, I appreciate everything that you have done. Thank you so much. All right. Well, this is Rob Thompson. Absolutely. And this is Rob Thompson. Uh, you'll be listening to Interview with Influencers. Thank you so much for listening. Um, have a great day, everybody. Deb, hold on.